Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is a podcast about architectural theory and cookbooks. I'm joined today by the multidisciplinary artist Esther Choi. I've been following Esther's work for a long time now, but primarily knew her only as an architectural historian and writer. She has a PhD in architectural history and theory from Princeton and studied the history and theory of architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and has written for all sorts of architecture and design publications. But what you'll quickly find is this is just one small part of her work. She's also a trained photographer and recently published Le Corbefay, a Fluxus-inspired artist book of texts and images that adopts the form of a cookbook. And last year during the pandemic, she started something called Office Hours, which is a socially engaged project focused on the sharing of knowledge amongst practitioners who identify as black, indigenous, and people of color. As you'll see, Esther's work is both deep and far reaching. And I was excited to talk to her about all of this. We talk about how she defines her work and the threads that tie these different projects together. We talk about being in academia and how this influenced her art practice. And then we talk about how writing, reading, and theory changed the way she thought about the forms her work could and does take. There's so much in this one. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Remember that if you like the show, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans that give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, full transcripts, and exclusive interviews, all while helping to financially support the show. So if you like Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thank you as always for listening, and here's my conversation with Esther Choi. I actually want to start very basic and I'm curious how like how you describe what you do <laughs> or what you say that you do you're I mean, back in the before times if you were at a party and someone asked what you do how do you how do you describe what you do uh good question now i say i am a i'm an artist i work across the fields of art and architecture and i'm also trained as an architectural historian so depending on my mood and <laughs> my employment um i wear different hats um but yeah, for a long time, that was a really difficult question for me to answer because I felt I really had to strike sort of my interests and, and my training. Mm-hmm. But I think after studying all these 19th century people, <laughs> I decided I'm just going to be 19th century in the 21st century and just have a lot it. of different, you know, commas uh, beside my occupation. Um, and And I think, you know, the people that genuinely interest me most are the people that have a lot of commas mm-hmm. <laughs> beside mm-hmm. their occupation you know like I always look to Adrian Piper mm. you know she's like a philosopher and also a conceptual artist and mm-hmm. also you know like mm-hmm. it, it and I think that those kinds of compound composite identities are always they seem a little more honest to me if I'm if I'm honest but maybe I'm I don't know maybe it's just also um it's taken me a while to accept that because i i there is an enormous pressure professionally and 
um, and yeah. socially to, to just say your one thing. So <laughs> I wish I was a poultry scientist or something, but I'm not, you know, like I'm just, <laughs> I'm not one thing. Um, and for immigration purposes for my visa, it definitely can make it complicated. Uh, it'd be much easier to say I was a poultry scientist, but, um, anyways, I'm, I digress already. I mean, I mean, that's no, that's exactly why I was asking because that I am also interested in those people. And I think this show is kind of about those people who have a lot of commas. And, and I think I've always strived to be one of those people that has a lot of commas. And the, the reason that I asked that for you and kind of like how you define yourself is because I first came to your work through your, your writing and kind of historical work, and then only later discovered this background that you have in photography and, and, and this whole kind of other side. And it seems like to me as somebody kind of from the outside who's followed your work, in the last few years, that background seems to have become more integrated into the the side of you that I was aware of, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so maybe to, to like pick that apart for a second, could you talk a little bit about that background? You originally studied photography. You have a BFA and MFA in photography. Is that right? I do indeed. Can you talk about that and then where kind of architecture started to fit into that? Yeah. Story? Yeah. I mean, I, I did not study architecture and practicing. I've no, I have no professional degrees. I came to architecture through my art practice and <laughs> I was doing my MFA and basically working architecturally, making drawings of installations I wanted to have built. And I would, you know, hire contractors to build these installations. I basically, I think, produced two photographs in the span of like three years, you know, like, I mean, they they were painstaking photographs that were enormous. But they were, you know, I was working a lot with video and installation and mm. um, writing a lot of theory um, and making models. And it was my advisor who was like, uh, hello, you know, you're you're basically working architecturally. You're looking at artists that make work about architecture. You mm-hmm. know, you're in the Canadian Center for Architecture's library all the time because I studied in Montreal. Um, you know, like, it's kind of a no-brainer. Maybe you should think about you know, think more about architecture. And it just was a profession that was just never, it literally never entered my mind. I went to an arts high school. I mean, it was all, you know, I was a visual arts major. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was doing like lithography. And for some reason, <laughs> it like never, I, it never occurred to me to study architecture. I didn't have also anyone in my family who, I mean, I was the first person to go to college in my immediate family. And like, mm. you know, most of my family didn't, you know, to be a creative when you come from a, like a lower income background is like pretty unheard of. So like there was no one that ever exposed me to architecture. So it was like so weird to be the age of like 25 or 26 and have someone say like, hello. So anyways, um, I ended up as I was uh, working on my final thesis MFA project, which was this like kind of elaborate installation I had built um, with this contractor and all architectural. It was like super it's, it was really funny. It's kind of basically about architectural theory in a lot of ways mm. um, and ways of inhabiting drawing and like a very architectural spatial problem. Um, and uh, I ended up applying to Harvard's Graduate School of Design uh, to do a Master of Design Studies in History and Theory because my whole MO was to learn more about architecture as a subject, not as a practice. Right, um, right. And I didn't think I would get in. Um, I just kind of, 
you know, I just put in the yeah. application and I just went about my business of finishing my thesis. And then basically, like, I think it was the day before my defense of my MFA, I found out I got in, which, you know, was like shocking. Um, anyways, that was like then. Uh, so then I thought I was at the GSD thinking that I was like an artist. Like, I'm just here because okay. I don't want to be a tourist. I don't want to yeah. like make, you yeah. know, I, I just that was like a big criticism that I had of a lot of artists when you know, you look at the kind of rigor of their ideas and the work when it's about architecture or using architecture as a kind of alibi for other things that it seemed a little, um, a little surface sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't want to be that person. So, you know, you know, trying to avoid imposter syndrome, I decided to do like another master's degree. And then, um, you know, but I think like it felt, you know, you just like, I just realized I was like, a, I was just dip, dipping my toe into a much larger set of issues and a discipline and a field. And so I ended up teaching an art for a very long time after that. But um, concurrent to teaching, I was editing books of architectural theory and getting more and more interested in the kind of history of ideas around architecture. Um, and then that led to a PhD. So all of it was like, the reason why I think I mean, I think it's really astute observation that it's like, oh, she seems like she's a historian. She's writing all the time. And then suddenly, what? She's an artist? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And it's because I think when you're doing a PhD, I mean, I we were next door. I was in the Department of um, Architectural History and Theory at Princeton. And, you know, it was an incredible program, an incredible opportunity to have, like, an education at that caliber that was just, like, it's just, like, unheard of for me, you know, coming from also, like, my my ex, you know, socioeconomic status before, like no one in my family has ever had like opportunities like this. So it was like, I could not say no to that when I, when I found out that I was accepted into that program, you know, and, and it, but it, it definitely was like a serious question I had to ask, which is like, well, you know, when I finished my MFA, I had a, I had an art gallery at a dealer. I was like, I was on a track to be a professional artist. And do I really want to, um, compromise that by spending eight years writing a PhD. Like it's, it's impossible to have concurrent careers when you're doing doctorate work because or doctoral work, because it's like a full-time job, you know? And, and so, and I felt enormous pressure in the academy to like, not be an artist, like what? You can't be an artist. You know, artists are like, they're not rigorous. They're anti-intellectual. You know, there was all these like yeah, assumptions yeah, made. Yeah. yeah. Even the art history department, like you go in there next <laughs> yeah. door. And I took a lot of classes in art history and it was a phenomenal department. But like no one, very few people actually even had studied art as a practice before starting art history. So it was like super weird that I was in architectural history and an artist and came with this weird background that was incredibly practical in some ways and technical. So you know, like at lunchtime, I would literally sitting with photo historians, like explaining how photographs were constructed when they would show me <laughs> negatives from archives. Like it was like, right. you know, it's just like a weird, but you know, I, and I never really knew what to do with that. And so I kind of like toggled back and forth and thought maybe I, maybe I'm just not meant to be an artist, you know, like maybe it's mm. just more practical to be, and I just felt a lot of social pressure. And anyways, this is a very long answer to your question, but basically uh, after finishing my PhD and, you know, it was like basically at the tail end of finishing my PhD, I just couldn't help myself by like making work. Um, right. and right. it ended up being this really weird book that I made that was, I mean, maybe not that weird, but it was an artist book, weird for me, an artist book that, that took the form of a cookbook of all things. And it was yeah. like, 
basically the result of me, I think, like, trying to repress, like, a lot of my actual interests. And it it just, I couldn't help it. And it just kind of came out. And, like, then I just was like, the jig is up. Like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I get it. Yeah. I love taking pictures. Like, I love image making. I love art. Like, all of my books are about art. Like, I can't not be that person. And so I was like, you know, I think instead of thinking so much about social pressures and a bio line, maybe I can just be who I am and do the things that interest me and fulfill me and that can sustain me. Like, creatively and make me happy because at the end of the day we don't know how long we're on this earth and like you know what I mean like I'm not gonna yeah. be in my deathbed being like I'm so glad that my my paper was accepted into a scholarly journal I'm gonna be like I'm so glad that I lived a life where I felt really happy to get up in the morning and and the things that I make bring me pleasure so yeah yeah anyways that's sorry it's a, such a it's a complicated answer for me because it's been like you know I think my professional identity I worked so hard to like um, towards sort of like my passions, but it's like, I also realize sometimes those things don't fit with social structures or systems that where you can monetize it or you can, you know, gain recognition for it. And, and I think even still like the work that I do as an artist is it's difficult for it to be commercial. Like all of these things are things that I have to kind of think about a lot. And also then at some point let go of, because at the end of the day, we're not like machines to produce commodities. We're human yeah. beings. So anyways, I, sorry, that's a long no, answer to your question. No, I, I totally get that. And, and I actually feel like that question set up everything else that I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> okay, like sorry. every question I had was embedded in that, in that answer. I want to, uh, the, so the art book you were talking about was Le Corbusier, which I do want to yeah. come back to and talk about a little bit more. But you said something very early about when you were studying photography and you had this advisor who said, have you ever considered architecture? And and you said something about how you were writing a lot of theory (laughs) at the time. Also, where did that, was that part of the program? Were you always interested in writing? Where did that kind of theoretical side come in for you? The program is, so I did my MFA at Concordia. I would say of MFA, it's, so Concordia is like, um, you know, one of the oldest MFA programs in Canada. It's been around forever. It's, it is longer than other MFA programs. And at least when I was there, it was highly theoretical. I mean, we, Mm. I was taking classes on Deleuze and Spinoza and Bergson with, um, Brian Masumi, who translated A Thousand Plateaus, you know, like it <laughs> right, was yeah. like those classes, like I would leave, I had never studied philosophy in my undergrad and like mm-hmm. I would leave, my head would be throbbing and we would literally spend like three hours on like two pages of text and just like really deeply analyzing it and discussing it. And I had just mm-hmm. never engaged with that kind of slow, deep reading before. And so anyways, this is to say, it was like, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways you could navigate that program, but I was always really gravitating toward theoretical, more theoretical classes. Okay. Um, and, and in a way, I also suffered a lot when I was earlier in my career, I guess, from writing about the things that I want to make and not making them. <laughs> Right. Yes, yes I have because been there. I felt, I might yeah. still be there, honestly. Yeah, it's hard because you know you don't have resources, mm-hmm. and you know you kind of get in grant writing mode of like yeah. this hypothetical thing, and then that weirdly satisfies 
this mm, like weird mm-hmm. part of your ego where you think that that, you know, you've made some grander, but really none of it exists. And so mm-hmm. that, yeah, I, that was a problem for me. Um, you know, and also thinking a lot about the difference between the intention of your work versus the effects of your work. Like I was really wrapped up in intentionality and not like actually what I was making. Like, mm. so anyways, so yeah, this was, so I was writing a lot, but it really was a way for me to fulfill some problems of making and not because I was, but I, but I was always like, you know, I've always been like very interested in, I guess, like ideas around work. So like yeah, artist writing, yeah. theoretical writing about art, like that, that to me is, is uh, something I've always gravitated to. So anyways, I think I was like trying to, I don't know what I was trying to do, but um, that's sort of where it started. Yeah, I totally, I feel like I'm the exact same way. I know exactly what you're talking about. And and it was the same way when I was, when I was in an MFA program, taking philosophy classes, I just like loved it. And I had never done that before either. My, my undergrad had none of that. I, you know, I had, I had never heard of some of these people before. Yeah. And I got so into reading about the reading these ideas and thinking about these ideas and talking about them that it then yeah it like it fulfilled the need that used to be filled through like making things and then I like leaned too far into that in a way and had to had to kind of pull back kind of like exactly what you're talking about of finishing the the PhD and having to make (laughs) this book I I totally get I'm I have a like really big question that you can kind of answer however you want to answer it. I'm curious how, do you have thoughts on how that deep reading and then that writing has either influenced the your more visual work or or you could kind of answer this even bigger and how the PhD and your time at Harvard and writing about other people uh, and other, you know, artwork, how did that then, uh, how has that kind of come back and changed how you think about your photography work or influenced Le Corbusier or this, you know, kind of more quote unquote traditional art practice that is what even set you on this journey? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's for me, it's a tool for thinking. You know, I think clear writing is clear thinking. And I think doing a PhD taught me how to think. And with some of the best people, honestly, I mean, some of the brightest thinkers, I mean, there were moments where, um, and I don't, I'm not trying to like valorize like Ivy league academia, but like, (laughs) I'm, you know, it has its problems and it's incredibly elitist. And I'm not saying if you don't have an Ivy league education, you're not intelligent, but I'm saying that I was though exposed to, um, you know, incredible professional thinkers like people who are like elite thinkers and and I was really lucky not everyone but like some (laughs) and like and they just also happened to be incredibly generous intellect intellectual thinkers you know like people who would really um not just kind of like uh promote their own project but really help you know be a community of colleagues that would lend their minds towards a problem that you're working on or that someone else is working on. And I think that to me was such an incredible opportunity. And, and also like, you know, I was in an interdisciplinary PhD program where I was like, you know, people in like, like I was in conversation with had like 
nothing to do with what I was interested in. And so mm. the questions that they would ask were just fascinating. And the things that way, the ways in which we can start to relate experiences and ideas, like it was just phenomenal to like, I just, you know, I, like people like to poo poo on their PhDs and blah, 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 and the experience of it and, <laughs> and Ivy league, da, 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 da. But I will say that, yes, a lot of those criticisms are totally valid, but it was also for me, for for not having access to those kinds of opportunities otherwise, like it was just an incredible opportunity. And Mm -hmm. so, um, and especially like learning, you know, taking classes in the history of science and like hearing how historians of science think about um, concepts in the world that in the humanities are approached in very different vantages. And, uh, you know, I just think that that was, it, it really advanced my understanding of how intricate these relationships are in terms of how we think about um categories and themes and ideas and and just even the literature i was exposed to it was so humbling to me to to be exposed to all of that and Mm. um you know just there's so Mm -hmm. much more i want to read and so much more i want to learn and i don't know it just wasn't Mm -hmm. you know so on that level it was like it it opened up for me, a totally different way of thinking about ideas around identity or, or even concepts of nature or, and the consequences of those kinds of things when it comes to world making and like, you know, and, and so, you know, I, I think as an artist, like I was interested in art in architecture and, you know, questions of space because of the, the stakes of world making. Um, and in my work as an artist, it was, you know, I could create these kind of what seem more like speculative situations, right? Of like aesthetic experiences mm-hmm. or spatial experiences that cause you to feel certain things. And for me, it was always a question of like, you know, of thinking about that relationship and crafting that experience. And then as a historian or as a writer, or even just as an artist writing or however you want to, whatever hat mm-hmm. you want to wear, like mm-hmm. it, you know, it just allows me a different way it's just a different form of thinking in the way that art is one mode of thinking and words are another mode of thinking. And I struggle with it. Like it's, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I'm suspicious of those people who are like, Oh yeah, I can just sit down like churn out, like whatever, you know, like (laughs) writing is so easy. It's like, I really, it is so hard for me to write, like so hard for me to write. And for a lot of reasons. And uh, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that's like the perpetual, you know, it's like the stereotype of the, of the writer, the frustrated writer, but like, it is really hard. And so that's also another conversation maybe around craft of writing, which is like, I really only, if I'm honest, maybe in the past five or six years, I really thought about more seriously. Um, but I, primarily wasn't thinking about craft. It was really just about a way for me to clarify intention and understand sort of things for myself, you know, like understand and parse out relationships, the things that I was interested in for myself. So it was really just a tool. Can you talk more about, about the craft of writing? Cause this is something I was interested in talking to you about. Cause I'm, I yeah. am, I, as a designer who also writes, I, I only realized in the last couple of years that, um, I, how I could think about writing almost as a as a form of design also and thinking about form and structure and rhythm and all the things that I think about when I'm you know laying out a page or something yeah. I could also think of like I I like you had thought of writing for a long time just as a way to uh to kind of think through something but not to actually make it um, to think about the formal qualities of the writing itself or the voice or the tone and I'm interested in 
how you kind of move between these. You know, you you write, you've written academic papers that are kind of following that format. I think Le Corbusier has, you know, a more kind of satirical type of writing in it. Also, you you move between these modes. Also, how do you think about how the form of the writing or the craft of the writing influences the ideas that you're thinking through? Yeah, I think about it. I don't know if the form, I don't know if it's really that I think about the form influencing the ideas, but I think about how the ideas mm-hmm. need to adapt well, I don't know. Uh, how the form, maybe 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 a better way, like how the form is generated by the ideas or something. Like, like, yeah. like how the ideas influence well, what the form has to be. Yeah, I think it's the intention. So, um, you know, form, I mean, I'm looking at it like my shelf of books and I'm looking at all these incredible writers like Janet Malcolm, man. Like, mm. wow, like <laughs> could I like ever write a sentence like Janet Milk or a paragraph like Janet, you know, like yeah, it's yeah. just I'm not I'm not at that level. I'm not a professional writer. I'm terrible with deadlines. I'm like I could never be a journalist. I could never be. I have okay. such admiration for people who can write long form essays from just like, you know, just kind of like whip these things off or book forum or like learn review yeah. books or whatever. Yeah. I'm just, you know, the New Yorker, like I, I, I'm not that kind of writer. I would say in terms of like formats of writing or audience, mm. I think about mm-hmm. audience mm. and I think about experience and like communication really. So what the objectives are, like if I'm writing a dissert, I mean, this is to say like, I thought about, I actually paid more attention to form um, in writing and actually create cultivating, uh, hopefully a tolerable experience writing or an interesting experience with reading. Um, when I was writing my dissertation, because I realized Mm. that I needed to get through the writing and I was having a really hard time. Like I was really blocked when I was trying to write my dissertation because I was so mired with like self-doubt and, you know, I wrote one, it took a year for me to write one chapter. It was like the worst thing I'd ever written. And my advisor even was just like, what is this? And I was like, he's like, you don't write like this. And I was like, I know I'm just like, I'm, mm. I'm like crippled with self-doubt. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I can just hear the critics. And so then I needed to develop a way in which I got in a mindset where I was writing to someone that tr- I trusted, like an imaginary person, an audience that I trusted that wanted, that I could have a... Like I felt like it was safe for me to like have a conversation with that yeah. audience for dissertation is obviously going to be a very different set of people than like the audience for Le Corbusier. And there's obviously very different objectives like Le Corbusier. I'm not allowed to have footnotes in my, you know, I, my publisher was just like, no, my, uh, yeah. you know, dissertation. It's like, it's all about that kind of level of like precision. And it, you know, that said, I really tried to write a dissertation that read like a story and, and for a lot of reasons, mm, um, mm-hmm. methodologically, da, da, da. but like my, my committee though, all said, said, like I felt engrossed in a narrative and I was like, that's, that was my objective. Um, that like, is there a way that you can use writing as aesthetically, like use it as a form to then deliver and, mm-hmm. and make for a compelling set of arguments and, and I think about form of writing in the way that, like, I think about genre in photography in some ways. Mm. Like, I still, <laughs> to add to my, like, my multi-hyphenate whatever <laughs> list, like, I still shoot commercially for editorial clients. Right. Yeah. Um, like, I just shot 
you know, not, I'm not trying to sound like whatever, but like, you know, I shoot for, I shoot a lot from the New York times. Basically I shoot still life from the New York times. Yeah. And yeah. you know, um, shooting still life is very different than shooting fashion. It's very different than making uh whatever. I like it because it's super technical work and it really, I just find it really enjoyable and technical work. Um, it's hard to do often. And I also really just like working with them, but like, but it's like, there's different genres in the same way that if you're composing a song, there's different genres, right. And different kind of structures and different expectations. If you're making like a fugue versus if you're making a punk song, like it's like, you know, very mm -hmm. different rhythm, very different, you know, uh, vibe, like different MO. And I just think of it on those terms. Um, yeah. And I'm not, and I, and I, I think in the back of my mind, because when I was thinking what, well, I mean, I've always wanted to be an artist since I was little, but like I played music for a long time and I played in a lot of bands. And so I think mm. about making art the way that, the way that I intuitively knew how to make music, if that makes sense. Like, like there's a certain kind of like feeling and an, a, a kind of like, um, it's, there is a kind of narrative in the sense of like a, a kind of sequence of feelings or emotions or a kind of like something right mm -hmm, sonically mm -hmm. that you're doing and with with especially with time-based work like there's a kind of similarity in that but with writing like as you were saying just like when you're designing something there is a kind of rhythm and a cadence and a you yeah. know and and a feeling to it and um and color like all these things mm -hmm, are elements mm -hmm. that are like son like writing a song and so I just think of it in terms of genres like are you doing an orchestral soundtrack like John Williams style for like <laughs> Lord of the yeah. Rings or are you doing like making a punk song that's two minutes long that is like super aggressive and you just need to turn it out and it's for that audience. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I don't know if that really yeah. answers your question, but like that's sort of how I think about it. And so obviously like, do I want to put people to sleep? If so, then like I'll write as if I'm like writing a dissertation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a peer-reviewed journal publication. Um, and yeah. even then, I still I think I do try to push the limits of like how journal publications are written because I can't handle, you know, like I kind of can't handle getting through that kind of material sometimes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So. Yeah. You yeah. know, why make it painful for people when you can make it a little bit more interesting and enjoyable? And um, this is to say, like, I don't know that I'm good at it. Like, I think it's yeah. really hard and, I, and I'm not a professional writer. And I think there are people who devote a lot of energy to it in ways that I don't. I just well, don't. Like, it's not my primary craft. I don't see writing as my primary craft. Yeah. So, so can we talk about this in, I mean, you mentioned Le Corbusier again. And so I think this is actually maybe an interesting almost like case study to kind of what you're talking about okay. can can you talk about well so so first of all for people who don't know what this book is can you describe you know what this book is but then can you also then talk about kind of like how you answered these questions that you were just you were just talking about like how you thought about the audience or like what that tone or vibe was that you were going for with that um and how that then helped kind of determine the form of the book yeah I mean I feel like there was um so it's a it's an artist book in the form of a cookbook. It's it was produced while I was writing a PhD in architectural history and theory, mm -hmm. like writing my dissertation, and it was really like an outlet for, um, for me to, I don't know, I guess like really ask some really fundamental questions around cultural value. Really, like as mm -hmm. someone that is like producing 
a narrative, which, you know, albeit was like very critical of a lot of really canonical players and canonical projects. Um, and, and I'm, but I had to really think about sort of like my role as a historian and promoting certain kinds of narratives and really also thinking about like how those narratives that historians write or curators write or theorists write Mm -hmm. also play into the kind of cultural value of objects, which at this point are like just monetized things. Right. So Mm -hmm. if I'm writing about the Bauhaus, if I'm writing about whomever, you know, whatever artists like Richard Hamilton or whomever, you know, these are people in my dissertation in some ways, like I'm adding, I may, I may be like contributing to a certain kind of mythology or canonization. I mean, they're really basic things that historians have to think about, but um, but I also, but I just, I found it like, um, I wanted to find a space in which I could still, uh, I don't know, I could use humor and I could like yeah. use play and like yeah. think about it still as a kind of with some elasticity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So I started throwing these dinner parties, um, and I, and the name Le Corbuffet came from a colleague that I was teaching at Cooper with at the time. This was like, mm. I think 2015 or something, Jimmy Louder. And I was like, I need to, I want to make these like food parties with like dishes that are inspired by art and design just to kind of like, I don't know, just to be, you know, just have some fun. And he was like, look, buffet. And I was like, I mean, Jimmy Ladder is like legitimately one of the most, the funniest people in the world. So I was like, done, you know, like I'm going to take it. He's like, take it. So I started throwing these dinner parties and, um, and just inviting people I knew most, like most you know, most people mm-hmm. I know are in the art and design cult kind of creative communities or whatever. They, uh, and, and it just became like a funny, like text message thread of me asking friends, like, I don't know, like, Maholi Naj, what do you think? Macaroni Naj? Like, Laszlo Macaroni Naj? <laughs> like, what would that, like, you know, like just kind of like playing with yeah. puns and, yeah. and kind of like mixing idioms and, and, um, but then the, it sort of developed into like, so it was really just a way for me to kind of like have fun, but but also like liberate the narratives a little bit of like how what we're taught, you know, about yeah, certain yeah. works and provide a space for like a little bit of a, like a different interpretation. And I started to think a little bit more about like what would, what's the stake? What are the stakes of that question? You know, and and what does it mean to have a certain kind of expertise in developing a narrative around a work or in a like and how and and like determining how it has value in the world or whatever it might be and so i started doing this and i started like thinking about i just always gravitate towards thinking about publications for some reason and i was just thinking like if this was a book what would it be and i you know in my like dissertation mode i was like oh yeah it's going to be this like theoretical manifesto da, da, da. <laughs> and then i got an email from an editor at prestel which is like one of the oldest art and design publishers mm-hmm. in the world you know they're just like it's been around forever and she was like hey i've heard about these like dinner parties that you have been putting on have you ever thought about putting together a publication and i said yeah absolutely and then i met her and she was like so we're thinking a cookbook and i was like what and I didn't take that seriously as a format until I started really thinking about the history of cookbooks and how they've been used by artists mm. and mm-hmm. and designers um, and how they were always these kind of polemical, kind of polemical um, formats because in, in a lot of ways, like it's a manual and it's also proposition and it's looking at ritual and the everyday as a space for a kind of like way of rethinking the politics of everyday life. And so mm-hmm. I thought 
you know, like there may be something to this. And so I, from there, it just kind of started. And it, the, I think the project in some ways is a little bit ambivalent in the sense that it's not just one note. Like it depends on the recipe that you fall on, that there's a different kind of, there's a way in which like, you know, I was looking at a lot of fluxus works and like thinking about participation. And I was like, so what does it mean for, to think about the cookbook as a kind of post-production manual, right? Like post-production in the sense that like, there's some kind of original piece, like the original Crepe Suzette. I mean, who knows who ever had, like no one's experienced that, right? Mm -hmm. Like who Mm -hmm. had the original, the original kimchi? Like no one's ever, you know, it's, we don't know, right? It's all kind of algorithmic in a weird way. It's all post-production. It's an idea of an original and there's like an Mm. essence of a certain set of things that make that, that thing. And yet you're always sort of like, grappling with how to make that different in your own and I think in a lot of ways that was sort of my way of thinking about history and like the yeah. canon right like yeah. Yeah. how do I like how can I take a uh I don't know a piece by like uh Franz Erhard Walther you know and then think about like well this is what these experts have said about the work but like how can I think about my experience with a work and and create my mm. own set of observations around it or analogies or metaphors or whatever it might be to like generate meaning. And maybe that meaning has some kind of like, maybe it doesn't totally align with like its value within academia or its value within the art market or its value within muse- museums. And maybe it's a different kind of value. And mm-hmm. so that was sort of like the, the real basis of the project. And then, um, And I also was super interested in like thinking about what it would look like to release a book about art and design and around cultural production in the food world, like to, for Mm -hmm. it to like operate in that system of economy and, and meaning making and image making. So it was a kind of like, kind of a hoax, kind of (laughs) like a really elaborate social experiment. And what was shocking to me is like, I I mean, I was scared. Like people told me it would be like the end of my academic career. And I was like, well, I don't even know that I even had one to begin with. So like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't yeah, know what the yeah. stakes are. Like, who gives a shit? Like, who cares about yeah. me? No one cares about me. No one's thinking about <laughs> me. Like, like I'm not yeah. the center. I'm not the protagonist in other people's lives. Like, I'm sure they'll get over it. And if they don't take me seriously, well, then they're not my people. Like, I don't know. Right. Like, right. That, what kind of life is that? And but right. I got a lot of flack from academic folks about it where they didn't know what to do with it and I was like well whatever like I think you know I was looking at I had come across an essay by Lisa Lepard about Trojan horses and about Mm -hmm. art and activism and I never thought about Le Corbusier as an activist work but it's just there's something really interesting what happens when you as a maker release yourself from the obligations of a professional community and you're just like I don't care if this doesn't like look like art or operate in the way that art should operate like you know i'm not there's no there's no blue chip art gallery where that can monetize this book and like make Mm -hmm. me an art star or whatever and i'm just going to release this thing in the world and as an experiment and see what happens and it was crazy like it kind of hit the cultural water supply in ways that like i had no idea like i didn't know what to do like i was getting like every day like i would get emails from like Vanity, it was everywhere. Vanity yeah. Fair, Vogue, like New Yorker, you know, like every everyone, New York magazines, like top 10 books on what to get your dad. Like it didn't make <laughs> any sense to me. And I was like, has anyone opened this book and like read right. it? And they hadn't. 
Like I was convinced that they hadn't um, mm. because I think if you actually read the text, you know, some of the, some of the um, recipes are a little bit like they're, they're kind of poking fun. Like, I mean, Lawrence Wieners, Wieners <laughs> yeah, are right. really just like boiled Wieners. And it's like the recipe is basically a riff on like his instruction set. But other works are trying to interrogate questions of immigration or migration or, you know what I mean? Like all, all of these kinds of things around cultural heritage. I mean, this was like during the time where it was like everyone was being banned by Trump. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it was like an incredibly, right, right. it still is very inhospitable, but like, you know, it, and so I was just, you know, for me, it was like, there, there is a, there are critical elements woven throughout, but it doesn't always take one voice. And, and yeah. for it to then like hit this kind of cultural water supply where it's like in vogue, I, I just didn't know what to do with that. Um, yeah. But it was an interesting learning experience in a way in which like thinking about, and again, like I haven't written this out and I, I, might, I might actually write this out, like write this into a thing, but produce an essay around this. But in things, but in, in terms of like thinking about how production value has somehow um, eclipsed like the semiotics of like what is actually imaged. So mm-hmm. there's like images mm-hmm. of like, like literal garbage like it's like our packaging and you know like I would I had no money to produce this book and I had no time and I was shooting for like 12 hours a day uh while while I was supposed to also be working my dissertation and I would like go around my neighborhood looking for things to use as props and I just Mm -hmm. couldn't afford to buy all the stuff I didn't get a grant to produce it like it was Mm -hmm. you know and um but it didn't, it somehow was really weird that like luxury aspirational publications would be touting this book. And when you open it up, the the way it's also photographs food and foodstuffs yeah. is like very yeah. much a critique of the industry of image making around food and also around the aspirational culture around food and how it's become totally classist. And I mean, it always mm-hmm. has been, but, um, but it was weird that they couldn't see that. Like, like, right. And, and I realized it's production value. It's because I photographed it in a kind of like high end editorial style and not because, and so anyways, sorry, I'm totally digressing, (laughs) but, um, but that it, it provided a lot of really interesting lessons for me about like the status of the image economy today, which has like really informed, I think, how I think about image making now like whether it's for a commercial you know assignment or if if it's for my own artwork it's an interesting case study in kind of what we were just talking about about how sort of the ideas helped generate the form that it took and and you know you had these questions that then were able to manifest themselves through photography through the form of the cookbook through you know all of these kind of questions but then on the flip side the form can also almost get in the way and I mean, this is kind of a design question that I think about all the time, where if you make something look like, quote unquote, good graphic design, it's taken seriously, like regardless of the, like, you know, the the form of something can then suggest an idea that might not really be there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or mask what it's actually trying to say. You put something in like, you know, a clean typeface with like a nice logo and you're like, oh, that's a real company. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I, you know, I think people when... When I was at, when I've been asked to talk about Le Cour Buffet, um, I don't know. I don't know if people feel disappointed, but I feel <laughs> maybe they are. Maybe they're totally disappointed by the project. But I, I, I realized that people expected this 
book to be produced as if the way that one writes a thesis, the way that one is like, I'm putting out an argument and here it Mm. is totally Mm -hmm. resolved. And I don't see, I don't see art. I don't see books. I don't see cultural products like that. Like I think that I started out with a set of interests and questions. It, I created this thing as a way to think through those questions. It, it, the thing I've made is like, like anything that anyone makes is a kind of Frankenstein creation that also then has other, like an afterlife, like, or many lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it does its own thing in ways that you couldn't anticipate. And I think this is where just going back to like the reliance on theory to kind of mask fear. I think that is the fear that I've always like Le Corbusier, like, ripped open the like ripped <laughs> off the band-aid of that fear of being totally exposed right. by like producing a project that if I'm honest like I, I hope my publisher's not listening but like I literally thought no one was going to read this like I thought it was just like <laughs> so weird that this yeah. book and it's not even as if like I've sold that many but it just yeah. it, the exposure of the book was so freaky to me and it was and I actually I was scared I was scared by it because of the way it opens you up to Mm-hmm. criticism yeah. and yeah. also I didn't know what the book would do like I, I it's like you create this thing it's in the world and then it kind of just does its thing in the world and it's not really about you it's kind yeah. of its own thing and right. anyway so this is to say I think like you know form is super interesting in that way and it was a total collaboration you know I worked with like Alex and um and Jenna at Studio Lynn and mm-hmm. they brought such incredible ideas to the table and you know they were looking at like you know, I, I hand them all of these, these references of like 60s process art and, you know, thinking about mm-hmm. materials and fluxus and action scripts and, um, you know, Marcel Brutaire's like typography, like all these things that I love that I was thinking about and all my references. And they were able to find these like threads in, in that those his very specific set of like historical references too that they wanted to you know bring into the contemporary moment and um i mean their original idea for the book was hilarious i think it would have been probably like 400 pages and weighed like 700 pounds you know <laughs> they wanted to blow up all of the ingredients so they were this massive massive you know huge mm. so that it really emphasizes material materiality so you're not looking you're not reading it thinking like four carrots you're like four carrots like it's like right. you know it's like screaming at you um um and the, you know they were really into like mono the monospace type as a way of thinking about like typewriters mm-hmm. as the dominant technology at the time and all these things that i thought were so smart mm-hmm. and so um yeah i just like i they brought a whole other level to it and i you know i just love the experience of working with them because they really helped to just really make it a thing in the world. And um, so, yeah, so it's a total collaboration in that sense, but like, I don't think, but in that sense, it's like alchemical, you know, it's like, you don't know, Mm. you know, it's not a formula. It's like, it's um, I mean, cookbooks are a formula. There's like an industry around it. I learned very quickly. Um, There are sets of expectations around that. And so the challenge that I had was like, how do I hack that formula? Like hack it and, and, what happens if it gets distributed into that circulation system of cookbook publishing, which at this point is like, you know, it's a very lucrative market. And, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, 
and can I, and you know, what will happen if like a different audience that, you know, picks up the book. And so anyways, but it's led to like incredible conversations, even with like people in the food world who are like, you know what, I opened this book. I thought it was a novelty book. I started realizing that the kind of class critique Mm. that you have within this is totally applies to the food world in terms of its elitism. And I was like, yup. (laughs) <laughs> yep. There's a reason why like the recipes try not try to avoid fancy ingredients and, and, yeah. and implements and all these things. It's like, like, how do we make it super DIY so that everyone can be an artist? Everyone can be a producer. Everyone can be an interpreter of cultural works. Everyone can be a historian. Everyone, you know, and that's the goal. And like, maybe I failed, but it, it just led to like such interesting, um, experiences and like questions that um but it but it is like but it's it's really hard to relinquish control and allow yourself that experience of learning alongside everyone else when you're supposed to when you're responsible for it and also you have to answer all these questions and it's like why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that and it's like I don't know I was in the moment and I was also negotiating with a publisher who had like their commercial publisher and they had very strong opinions about making not losing money and wanting it to be a commercially viable success so it's like I think I don't know I always just think about like um I don't know this probably sounds so tangential like everything else I've said but like Marcel Marcel Duchamp was like a cheesemonger at one point in his career you know Hmm. like he literally I don't think I knew that yep he sold cheese I mean, it was a, it, for a lot of reasons. Like he said, he, he didn't say, he didn't admit that he was an artist. And, but I, I think about, I think about that all the time. Um, and how, you know, one of the, you know, artists as a kind of profession is in like, you know, the kind of neoliberal sense is like, there's a certain kind of blue chip artist that makes a certain kind of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm not trying to poo poo that. Like, I think it's great if you can, operate at that level of production or whatever but I also think there's a tradition of artists where you are a chameleon where you say you're a museum creator like Marcel Brutaires and you start your own museum or you Mm -hmm. are a poet Mm -hmm. or you are a whatever you are what you need to be in order to make um, a certain set of circumstances or a kind of experiment or to hack culture or whatever you do like you know and and I I love that freedom that yeah, that yeah. those models of, of being in the world like can offer and so this is to say like you know and and hey like only in retrospect are we like oh yeah it makes total sense that like artists would start a restaurant in soho um at the time it like probably didn't make sense to a lot of like art dealers or collectors right and it only and then it it needs to be commodified as like oh relational aesthetics or whatever we call things in order for it to like accrue value within a a system of you know a commercial art world or whatever it might be and so this is to say like the freedom that that can offer you I love but it it does come at a price in a way because it's not easily understood and it's also hard when you're in the contours of the moment to totally understand what's like what something that you've made in the world is doing. I, I mean, it's it, it's nice in that it almost like brings this conversation back full, full circle, talking about the commas in, in what you do. Uh, I want to use that to, to very briefly talk about two other books that you co-edited, Architecture at the Edge of Everything Else and Architecture is All Over, which are, mm-hmm. are two books that, that I loved for many reasons. 
Um, but I think both of those books are about the sort of blurry definitions of architecture or how how architects kind of move into other spaces or and like whether that's still architecture or not and i like i read architecture is all over you you write in the intro to that 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 could be all over as in finished which is how i read it until mm-hmm. i read the intro which probably says something about my feelings about architecture and design but it's also all over as in everywhere and you know that's kind of been the theme of this conversation actually is is this kind of um you moving between these different spaces and being interested in people who are kind of moving across these different spaces and i'm i'm kind of curious i guess that interest in these your your kind of critical interest in these moving between disciplines is that a way for you to situate yourself like like do you see your work as part of that lineage i mean you just mentioned like opening the restaurant in soho and and you've written a lot about people like you know gordon matta clark and assemble and and these these kind of architecture people who move across conceptual spaces how do you see your work as kind of part of that type of tradition or do you at all i guess i've never really thought about my work as part of a tradition I would say um, a tradition might not be the right word, but it seems like the people, especially like kind of the themes of those two books and even the people that we've talked about today are people who are kind of moving across spaces much like you are. Yeah, um, yeah I guess so. I mean, I think I'm interested in ideas like mm-hmm. the reason like even in my I just I don't know, it's really weird. I came across an essay I wrote. I don't know how long ago. I think it was in like 2005, or like when I was in grad school or something. And but doing my MFA, it was about relational aesthetics, and it was about mm. how artists are using design and architecture as backdrops for a certain kind of theater of social production. Mm. And it was really critical, like super critical of of that move. Um, for whatever reason, I keep thinking about that essay, not because I had like particularly good insights, but just in the sense that it like, I think crystallized for me um, why I find architecture and art or architecture and design so interesting, which is that it's a kind of like aesthetic form that you can touch. And it's a kind yeah. of, you know, it has ritual and habit and, and habitus, like all of those ideas like built within it, within these things, like, most people will know how to interact with a chair. There's a kind mm. of chairiness to the mm. chair. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there's a kind mm-hmm. of like social production that's kind of inscribed within certain objects of use that I find super interesting that is a space for playing with. Yeah, I, I think like I'm, you know, I'm interested in like how they form ideas about self and the world yeah. really, right? Yeah. Like if they're world making technologies and I, I think I've always just been super interested in that. So um, and I, yeah, and I think to that end, like, I mean, I, I, there's a million painters and sculptors and photographers that I like who make kind of discrete art objects for a kind of aesthetic appreciation. But I find myself, I think increasingly, as much as I still like making those kinds of, I like making images and I like making videos and I like making, you know, those kinds of experiences. Like I would say I've always been interested in a kind of participatory element or like mm-hmm. a dialogical element to image making, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. only really, I think, has become clear to me in the past five years or so that that's, um, hmm. which doesn't make any sense because actually I was doing this even my undergrad. 
like my undergraduate thesis was actually like like it like anyways yeah I don't know it's 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 um maybe I should spend more time like trying to like write about my own work and trying to clarify the Mm. aims to have it be more focused but yeah Yeah. image image making and like like you know I've been reading right now a lot about the relationship between sculpture and um sculpture and dialogical aesthetics or, or participatory aesthetics and like how certain artists have used objects as ways of mediational mm. tools to kind of create social production or social situations. And I'm super interested in how images in, in their varying ways, like screen culture, yeah. you know, zoom culture, all of yeah. these different kinds of technologies of image making in the image economy can also facilitate a certain kind of architecture of the social if that if right, you call it right, that. Right. So, right. um, um, but I've, I'm, I, I don't know that I've found a lot of like really interesting thinking and writing about that specifically. Um, mm. I think a lot of it has really happened within the world of performance and sculpture, at least in the art world. But yeah. anyway, so this is to say like, um, I don't know. I just think of myself as like operating within like a constellation of ideas. And so certain right. practices that interest me usually tend to, you know, like touch on those ideas in some ways so i think it's a good way to to ask you the last question which is the question i used to end all of these which is i'm just curious what you're reading right now i mean i'm reading a lot of things because i'm writing syllabi um oh right i'm reading actually so a couple things um there's a book of conversations between tanya bruguera and claire bishop um Mm. that look at um, Tanya Bruguera's ideas around sort of like her social engaged engage practices and um, the way she thinks about participatory aesthetics and activism, which is phenomenal. Um, it's just called Tanya Bruguera in conversation with Claire Bishop. Um, also, I picked up, or it just actually just arrived in the mail, um, a book on Franz Erhard Walther um, mm. called Objects to Use Instruments for Processes. Like his work is something that's really been interesting to me, and I'm uh, you know, I've just been thinking a lot about like ways in which some ideas from just social, uh, around social architecture from Joseph Boyce have sort of been, mm-hmm. can be mm-hmm. translated in other people's work and, and vice versa. Um, because I think also that concept is a little under theorized. So anyways, those are the th- things that I'm reading, um, amongst a plethora of like, of course, cor- course stuff for courses, um, that I'm teaching. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think those two books have been things that I've been thinking a lot about. Esther, this was so fun. Um, I really like your work and I really like how you think about your work. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. And sorry for rambling so much. Oh, no, that I love those conversations. This episode was recorded on August 25th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.